may be seated. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 6 through 9 today. I was going to go all the way through the end of the chapter, but I think there's some things that we need to examine more closely here, so that will allow us to do that if we just take these four verses. First Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your help this morning. Lord, I do need your wisdom and your grace to put these things together. Uh, Lord, to compare Scripture with Scripture, that we might get a fuller picture of the wisdom, the comfort, the admonition that's here in these passages. And so we pray for your help this morning. And uh, we ask that you would be with Sandra, teaching the little ones. Pray for your wisdom in this class here. And uh, we ask that you would bless your word to the heart of your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First, Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. If you remember, we are looking at the theme of God's justice here in chapter 1 of Second Thessalonians. And so we continue that theme. Last week, we looked at God is always just toward his children. And this week, we will look at God is always just toward the lost. The main thought, of course, being that God is always just and we can rest in that. And we can, we can proclaim that, you know, especially in a world where people are so quick to blame anything bad that happens on God. And my first response when people say that to me is, well, when it was good with you, were you thanking him regularly? And of course, they just look at you, you know, and they just, they weren't. And but boy, and even as someone who doesn't believe in God or says they don't, they'll blame him like that as soon as something bad happens. And so I think it's important that we as his people have a biblical perspective of God's justice. So first of all, we see in uh, chapter 1, verse 6, that God will trouble the troublemaker. It says here, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation. The idea is something that is narrow, something that presses you or squeezes you. When Jesus said straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life. That word narrow is the exact same word or a form of it, of the word tribulation. And it has the idea of pressing and squeezing. And so God is going to oppress those who oppress. God is going to deal out tribulation to the ones who enjoy giving out tribulation. And there is a law uh, that we cannot see, but it is as real as anything. There's a law of recompense with God, is there not? What happened to Daniel's persecutors that wanted to throw him to the lions? They got thrown to the lions. Uh, when the Jews said of Jesus Christ, his blood be upon us and upon our children, and they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Just a little over 30 years later, the Romans were crucifying those very same Jews outside the walls of Jerusalem. And uh, we could go on and on and on. But there is a law of recompense that is alive and well with God. And evil deeds will be rewarded. And God will deal out tribulation. But I want us to turn and compare, turn to uh, Psalm 37. We're going to spend a decent amount of time here. Keep a finger in 2 Thessalonians 1, but turn to Psalm 37. Because there are so many 
um, principles and truths here that just complement what Paul's saying and give us a deeper uh, understanding of what's coming down the road and how God will take care of us. We can count on him to do right. And we can count on him to deal out justice when justice needs to be dealt. But in Psalm 37, you know, Paul says here, it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. You know, the, the day of the wicked is short. It really is. It's really very short. Uh, look at Psalm 37, the first two verses. Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. What happens the minute you cut your yard? You have all those shavings left in the yard, and they're all nice and green and dark, rich green. What happens? You come out the next day, and they're brown as brown can be, right? It didn't take them long. It's just like that. They're dried up. What happens to an herb garden? Uh, Dennis is getting ready to plant an herb garden, and it's going to be really pretty as long as he waters it, as long as he doesn't give it too much sunlight, and as long as he allows it the things that it needs to nourish itself. What happens if he denies it food, water, or adequate sunlight, or too much sunlight? It's going to just wither and turn into a wilty mess. It never ceases to amazement. You can walk out to a pretty garden, an herb garden, whatever it may be. It's luscious. It's green. It looks alive. You go out that afternoon after a hot, say, North Carolina sun, and it looks like somebody just went over it with a blowtorch. And it doesn't take but that, right? Well, that is what the wicked are in the eyes of God. You know, we say concerning our own lives as believers that our life is but a vapor. That's true. Well, it's but a vapor for anyone. And uh, they will soon wither as the green herb. Following this same thought of the wicked, the days of the wicked being short, uh, peruse down with me here. Look at verse, uh, the same, uh, uh, where was I? Turn the page. Concerning the law of recompense, look at verse 15. Their sword shall enter into their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. And so when we see the persecution going on or we experience it ourselves or we see it in this country or in other countries, understand that all of that, God sees every last bit of it. And he has a book where it's all recorded. And uh, consider Revelation chapter 21 where we see the dead, small and great, stand before God and the books were opened. And God's recording meticulously every single thing that every person has done. And that's why it's so crucial that you and I and, and everyone be covered by the blood of Christ because otherwise all those works are being jotted down and they will all be repaid, will they not? And uh, people say, well, uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to earn my way to heaven. You don't want to do that. You don't want to try to earn anything because the only thing you and I are earning outside of Christ is death. The arms of the wicked shall be broken in verse 17, but the Lord upholdeth uh, the righteous. Look at verse 10, for yet a little while. Now that reminds me of when God says about the return of Christ, it is but a little while and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. But look at verse 10, yea, thou shalt diligently consider his place and it shall not be. You know, what's, what's left of the Roman Caesars? You know, all we know of them is what we can find in uh, what isn't, uh, what may be recorded in Scripture, though there's very little there because God isn't primarily concerned about secular history in the Bible. But all we really know of them is what we have left over from archaeology or what may remain of an ancient historian. And some of that we're not even too sure about because we don't know if it's lies or if it's exaggeration or what, right? 
But so little remains of the glorious Colosseums and of the glories of, of their temples and of the glories of this and of the glories of that. Thou shalt diligently consider his place, and it shall not be. And, uh, you know, I, I read once uh, the quote of Cyrus the Persian. I don't believe Cyrus was saved. Some people will teach that because of his declarations in Ezra chapter 1, but uh, I won't go there. Anyway, if you believe that, that's fine. But uh, Cyrus said at the end of his life, you know, he owned the whole world, the whole known world at one point, and it was the largest empire of anything that had been before him. You know what his epitaph was? He said, I am Cyrus the Persian, who won for the Persians their empire. Uh, No, actually, I I take that back. Let me rephrase that. He said, um, here lies Cyrus the Persian, for when thou comest, O man, he said, and I know that thou wilt come. He said, I am Cyrus the Persian, who won for the Persians their empire. Do not therefore begrudge me this bit of earth that covers my bones. And that was his parting statement. You know, and in that, there's a lot of wisdom in that statement. He's saying, you know, here I was a great king, and I'm gone. And I know there's some other great kings coming after me, and this horrible cycle is never going to end. And all I'm asking for is that you just don't excavate me and take this one little plot of ground that I have that's located, we think, in northern Iraq, though no one's totally sure about that. And he was talking to uh, Alexander the Great. He didn't know it at the time, and that's who found that tomb, and that's who found that saying, and that's who recorded that for us. But that's just a good indication that thou shalt diligently consider his place, but you won't find it. Yeah, you may hear about him for 20, 30, 40 years, but you know, how long does any of us really last? How long does the wicked of the wickedness of the wicked really last? Now look at verse 36, or verse 35. I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a green bay tree. Yet he passed away, and lo, he was not. Yea, I sought him, but he could not be found. He could not be found. So the time of the wicked is short. God is going to recompense trouble to those who enjoy causing trouble and to those who are outside of Christ, as it says in verse 9, and and to those who have rejected the gospel. But um, you and I, my friends, uh, we will endure and we will continue in Christ and we can enjoy peace and deliverance and we can rest in Christ. And we see that concept also in Psalm 37. As Paul says in the passage before us, and to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven. To you who are troubled, rest with us. Don't let your eyes get on the wicked and don't let yourself want to adopt their ways. One concept, one truth we find in Psalm 37, and Paul taught it, is that, you know, when we're under pressure, the human response is to adopt the methods of our oppressors that we might deliver ourselves. That's a pragmatic approach, right? If you can't beat them, you join them, or you adopt their methods so that you can defeat them. Uh, That's a war tactic. The Romans used it. They adopted the war methods of the people they conquered, and that was one thing that made them so effective in winning their empire. They weren't stuck on their one little method. If something else worked, they brought it in, okay? And so it's human nature for you and me to say, well, they're doing this to me. I'm going to do this to them. I'm going to retaliate. But we find the exact opposite of that concept here in Psalm 37. Because look at verse 3. Okay, so the wicked's going to do this. The wicked's going to do that. What's the admonition to the righteous? Trust in the Lord and do good. Trust in the Lord and do good. 
Continue, Jesus would say it this way, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the children of your father which is in heaven, right? So shalt thou dwell in the land. Now be careful with some of these promises. He is talking to Israel. Okay, it's not a guarantee that you and I won't be driven out from our personal home or forced to flee to another country, but the concept of stability and always having a place in the house of God is just as live and real for you and I. So shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. Can I say it this way? God's going to take care of you. Okay, maybe that, that the, the exact application of that isn't for you and I because we're not Jewish people, but the concept and the principle is the same. God's going to take care of you. Don't worry about it. Just trust in the Lord and do good. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. That doesn't mean God's going to give you whatever you want or give me whatever I want. It means that if I walk with Jesus, he'll teach me the things that I should desire. And he'll put those desires in my heart. You know, I find when I have fellowship with God daily and I'm obeying his word, when I'm ministering to the saints, keeping my eyes off the world and keeping my eyes on Christ, when I am uh, trying to walk in holiness before the Lord, I find that God gives me the desires that I should have. And I find when I'm not walking with Christ, I'm starting to want things I shouldn't have. And I think that's the primary concept of what this verse is saying. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. And I love verse 6. And he shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light, and thy judgment as the noonday. When Jesus comes back, he is my righteousness. He's yours, is he not? And when he comes back, and we'll look at this more in the next lesson, he is going to bring that righteousness to full light. And that judgment that you and I long for in our lives and in the lives of others, he's going to, it's going to shine like the noonday. And we read down here in a little, a little further in verse 11, the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. There's an abundance of peace that's coming. The day of the wicked is short. But God, knowing our human tendency to adopt the methods of our persecutors or our enemies so that we can deliver ourselves, protect our rights, vindicate our pride. He puts some warnings in here. He says in verse 7, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself. You'll find that word fret quite a bit. The idea is don't get all stirred up and angry. Don't get all frustrated and just, just spun up. Does that sound familiar in our day and age? Easy to do, right? Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way. Because of the wicked man who, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass, cease from anger. Cease from anger. Forsake wrath. There it is again. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil. Well, the government's doing this, so we're going to do that. Well, they're taking my money, so I'm going to get paid under the table, and I'm going to hide this from them. We're going to we're, we're going to retaliate over here, and we're going to have we're going to meet and have this. It just goes on and on and on, you know. Oh, I come take my gun out, blow their heads off. You know, you just, the list goes on and on and on. The Bible says, fret not thyself in any wise to do evil. Why? Because God's no respecter of persons. If you and I adopt the method of our persecutors, we're going to get the same judgment they get. Because it says right here in verse 9, for evildoers shall be cut off. But those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. And so God being no respecter of persons, he says, don't adopt their methods Cease from anger, fret not, forsake wrath. You do right, I'll take care of the wicked. What is a common human tendency for you and I under pressure or persecution? 
to kick into self-preservation mode, okay? Hunker down, get our guns out, hunker down in our foxhole, and just wait for the enemy, right? We're going to blast them as they come through the door. That is our human tendency. That's our natural reaction, self-preservation. But what do you find in the Thessalonian church when they were under pressure? And what do you find in the Philippian church when they were under pressure? Paul says, we are bound to thank God always for your brethren. Because that your faith in the Lord groweth exceedingly. And what? And the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth. Right? So here they were under pressure. And they were actually showing more love and concern to each other. And so here they were going through persecution. They were having their goods confiscated. Possibly relatives being imprisoned. They were losing jobs, places of employment. And I'm going off secular history mostly to make these assumptions. Okay? Though I think that fits with the the difficult situations we were reading about in the epistles. Some of them were being killed, and you would think that they would be driven to, well, I'm going to take care of myself, okay, and I don't care about anybody else because these are hard times. The direct opposite was happening. They were, they were abounding in charity toward each other, and the Philippian church was doing the same thing. Paul said, uh, you gave out of your deep poverty, and you gave to the needs of the people of God. And so the pressure, as they obeyed and trusted God, God was giving them a supernatural ability to show love and more concern and meet the needs of each other. They took what little they had and they shared it with the guy over here who had even less. We find that exact same concept in Psalm 37. Look over here in verse 21. The wicked borroweth and payeth not again. Have you ever given somebody, let somebody borrow something you never saw it again? I have. I have. I hope you and I haven't done that to other people. If we have, that's a sin, and I hope we've gotten that right. But the righteous showeth mercy and giveth. And that doesn't, the Lord doesn't say, well, that's only under good circumstances as long as there's plenty laying around. No, it just says the righteous showeth mercy, mercy and giveth. Verse 26, verse 25, I have been young and now I'm old, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. You're never going to outgive God. His shovel is larger than yours. His bank account is infinite and yours is limited. And I want him to continuously be depositing into mine. And he will. Right? Call unto me and I will answer thee. Show thee great mighty things which thou knowest not. God said to Israel, if you, if you only trust me, I'll open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing so that there will not be room to receive it. Okay? Look at this verse 26. He is ever merciful and lendeth and his seed is blessed. He's ever merciful and lendeth. Isn't that interesting how God shows the, the, the act of giving as an indicator of one's mercy? Right? He's given to people. He's helping people. He's, he's giving of his substance, his time, and he's not letting the pressures make him self-centered and focused on self-preservation, which is so easy to do. The time of the wicked is short. Rest in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. God will trouble the troublemakers. God will punish all unbelievers. We see that in verses 7 through 9. And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Look at Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. In verse 13, Daniel gives us a picture of this. I think it may be one of the, well, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's the earliest picture we see of this concept of Christ coming in the clouds. This is not talking about the rapture. This is talking about the second coming, the return of our Savior to establish his kingdom. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, 
came with the clouds of heaven and came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations and languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed and when Jesus was standing before the Sanhedrin what did he say? and they said art thou the son of God? he said thou hast said Nevertheless, thou shalt see hereafter the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. And they rent their clothes and said, What further need have we? He's blasphemy. Kill him. Crucify him. Because they knew what he was saying. He was saying, I'm God. And I'm going to sit on the right hand of God. I'm coming in the clouds of heaven. He was quoting Daniel chapter 7. That's why they got so angry. But here's our Savior returning in the clouds of heaven in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know God. God is going to deal out justice and vengeance in his due time. It's not revenge like ours. It's something that has, is divinely calculated and has been divinely weighed out and it's, it's justly uh, distributed. But you know what I love about this picture here in Daniel? Look at verse 9. We find God unapproachable due to his holiness. Completely unapproachable for you and I due to his holiness. Look at verse 9. I beheld till the thrones were cast down and the ancient, that is God the Father of days, did sit, whose garment was white as snow and the hair of his head like the pure wool, his throne was like the fiery flame and his wheels as burning fire. And this is a picture of his chariot throne like we see in Ezekiel, chapters 1 and 2. When, uh, the, when Ezekiel saw the Lord, it was lifted up above the earth and the four seraphim, one on each corner of his throne platform, were carrying him and then below them were the, um, the wheels of the, that had no sides. In other words, they were kind of shaped like a globe. They could go forward or they could go sideways. And it's a picture of God's chariot throne. Don't ask me to explain any more than that. That's all I know. And so here we see the same concept. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. There we see the judgment of the end times. Um, that is the judgment before the millennial kingdom, I believe it's speaking of. And so here we have the Son of Man. Here's God, fiery, fiery stream issuing everywhere. He's completely unapproachable due to his holiness. And here we see the Son come to the Father and they bring him near before him. And those who are in the Son, we have that closeness with the Father. But it's only because of the pureness of the Son in which we hide. But think about those who are outside of the Son, outside of his blood, outside of his righteousness. All this picture is for them is destruction and terror and fear, is it not? And so here comes Christ. He's returning in the clouds of heaven in flaming fire. Paul, I believe, recalling <coughs> the accounts of Daniel and, uh, and other things as he writes these words. And it says that he's going to take vengeance on them that know not God. And this actually, if you look at it in the Greek text, them that know God, God and them that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's actually two different groups of people. I'm not saying there's... There's more than one kind of lost person. You're lost, you're lost. But I'm saying is, it's not, I thought initially as I read, this was actually talking about the same folks. Well, it's separated by two different articles. And so there's them that know not God and them that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And think about that. How, what two different kinds of lost people are there, so to speak? There's those who have never heard a physical account of the gospel and those who have heard a physical account of the gospel, right? Well, God's going to punish both sets. Because it isn't whether or not you've heard the gospel that lets you into heaven or kicks you out. It is your sin that kicks you out. Okay? It is our sin that keeps us from having fellowship with God. Sin has separated between you and your God. Your iniquities have hid his faith from you that he will not hear. 
So even the guy that's in the jungle, who's never heard the gospel, is going to go to hell just as much as the guy over here who has heard uh, 15 accounts of the gospel or drives every day back and forth to work past the church that preaches the gospel. Okay? So, well, that's not just, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Hold on, it is. Because there's at least two things, two preachers, if I can say it that way, that drive men toward the gospel. Creation and conscience. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. Okay? It doesn't matter where you are. That's true. That's a universal reality. And the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech. Every day is talking about God's glory. And night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Okay? So everybody all over the earth hears the witness of creation. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words unto the end of the world. And he goes on and he speaks about those things. And, you know, and there have been missionary accounts of tribal peoples who said, uh, look, you know, you came here as an answer to my prayer. I think of, I don't remember the missionary's name, but there was this one Indian tribe, I believe it was in Africa. But uh, the guy that, uh, one of the tribal folks that got saved said, gave this testimony. He said, you know, I went outside one night and I just looked up the stars and I said, there's got to be something better. There's got to be somebody who made all this. And uh, he just cried out to this unknown God and said, well, if you're really up there, would you send somebody and tell me about you? And about a year later, this missionary showed up and spread the gospel. So don't tell me that creation <laughs> is not a preacher of some kind. Now, it's not the gospel, okay? But it is a spur. It is an instigator to drive you toward bigger and better answers, okay? And we see this concept also. Paul laid it out clearly. Turn with me in... Uh, to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, where we find out that creation is a bold witness of God's eternality and Godhead. Verse 18 of Romans chapter 1. <clears throat> For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. So that's mankind, okay? There's no exceptions. The guy who's heard the gospel, the guy who hasn't heard the gospel, they're all under the witness of creation, and what they do with that, okay, will determine whether or not they end up finding God or rejecting God. But the wrath of God is abiding on all of those people. It's ready to be dished out because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath showed it unto them, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And uh, when you are witnessing to folks and people pull the God's not just card on you and the lost folks, they, you know, they don't know many things about the Bible, but they know enough theological questions to ask you at least two. That is, well, why does God let bad things happen? And why does God send people to hell who've never heard the gospel? Even though they don't. Those are the two things they're always going to throw in your face. Well, Psalm 19 and Romans 1 would be a great place to bring them, as well as point them back to their own wicked heart. It has all kinds of truth and has totally just chucked it out the window. The conversation will probably end rather quickly. And so you have the witness of creation, but you also have the witness of. Now, understand, I am not saying that this is by any means. This should encourage you and I to be better witnesses because the witness of creation is there. 
But man's deception is great. And Satan loves to blind people. And he's doing it every day. And so understanding that all folks, uh, whether they've heard the gospel or haven't, understanding that they're all going to hell should encourage you and I to be better witnesses and to take the, to take the endeavor seriously. You know, and I enjoy giving to missions. And uh, I enjoy giving to people of like faith and practice. I don't enjoy giving to missions generally, you know, because I like to know who I'm giving to. I don't want to, there's a lot of garbage that you can support. I'm picky in my missions giving. Probably not as picky as I should be, but I am. Okay, and so, I, but I enjoy giving to people who I know are going to go and be faithful with the word of God. That's a delight. It's one reason you and I go to work. We don't go to work just to put food on the table. We go to work to be able to pay for missions so that people can go. And that's how we help, we assist uh, in uh, people who have never heard hearing. But there's also this concept of conscience being the witness. In Romans chapter 2, we find that. And I know these are probably all very familiar passages to you. Romans chapter 2, verse 13, uh, talking about the, uh, the doers of the law. Paul makes a differentiation in this passage, talking about if you look up the, the Greek words, I believe they're significant. And one is talking about someone who is a rigorous performer. And one is talking about someone who literally guards something like a, a Roman soldier would guard. And he used two different verbs. And I think that's important. And he's laying out the idea of one who just religiously performs and one who guards and protects the uh, heart of God's law in his heart and thereby performs it. But anyway, different sermon. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, they have no physical written form of the Ten Commandments or the Pentateuch, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are law unto themselves. You know, there is, I don't care what area of the world you go to, how remote, how primitive, there's some kind of social law there. There's some kind, okay? Depraved as it may be, there's something going on there. There's, there's retribution of some kind for certain actions. You know, everybody's got their limit. And every culture, no matter how base, has its, has its limit. You know, you think about the, um, uh, the, uh, the uh, primitive Indian cultures of America prior to, to uh, the white man taking over all the continental U.S. And you think about, well, even the cruelest and basest cultures had some form of law. Some form of honor, some form of conduct, things you did and didn't do. Now, some things you did do that we'd be like, what are you doing? And they're like, well, this is just normal life. I understand that. But everybody has some form of law, and God has given every man that conscience and that desire to be under some kind of rule, some kind of order, some kind of, we've got to worship something. We've got to have some kind of law here. And that concept is alive in everyone. I've never met anyone any differently. Which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. And Jesus said, I judge him not if any man receive not, my, receive not me. Uh, I, I judge him not. There is one that judgeth him in the end. The word that I have spoken, that shall judge him at the last day. And so here are these two, these two witnesses. And they're just, they're little instigators. They, they spur people on. And uh, you see less and less reaction to this. I believe in, in this country, I don't know about the rest of the world, but in this country, we're seeing a less and less of reaction to creation and conscience as man becomes more materialistic, more humanistic, more self-focused, and just generally more rebellious 
and more hateful toward any concept of a higher authority. And so we're seeing less and less response to these things. But that doesn't mean the things aren't there. That doesn't mean that they were still not accountable for them. But the world is becoming darker. And as Paul said, evil men and seducers are shall wax worse and worse. And that's what's happening and has been happening for a long time. But the punishment will be everlasting. Paul says, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And so this shoots down any concept of annihilation or any concept of, well, hell really isn't real. And uh, we like to go to Luke 16 to prove hell is real. Great place to go. I encourage it. This is also another good place to go. There is an everlasting destruction. It isn't a destruction that just takes place and it's done. It's eternal. It's everlasting. It's from the presence of the Lord. So the worst punishment of all will not just be the pain, but be the fact that man who's in hell is now separated eternally from any, any communication, any fellowship, any, anything with his creator. He can't go plea at the bar. He can't go ask the judge for mercy. He can't hear any comforting words. He can't worship anything. He's banished from the presence of God. And that's an eternal thing. And that's an everlasting thing. And so is God just? Yes, he is. And so how should you and I, how should you and I handle that reality? Well, it should drive us to be merciful toward those who don't know God. Number one, okay? Be patient, be firm. You don't, don't take a pragmatic approach and, and try to make something work in order to win them over. Just keep giving them the scriptures and do what's right, okay? Trust in the Lord and do good. So shalt thou dwell in the land and verily thou shalt be fed. Rest in the Lord. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil. Remember, the wicked borrow and lend or borrow and pay not again, but the righteous show mercy and lendeth, right? And so in pressuresome time, when pressure, pressuresome, that's not even a word. In times when there's great pressure and trouble, don't let that drive you to self-preservation. I've known people like that. I've had friends that have gone that route. Don't go that route. And I say that to myself as well as to y'all. Don't go the route of self-preservation. Instead, let it drive you like the Thessalonians to have greater charity and greater mercy. And let God take that in a seemingly impossible situation and prove just how much he can provide for you. Don't you love the fact that your paycheck doesn't come from a government or a job? You know, I don't care what your job pays you. Your food doesn't come from your job. It comes from God. And all of the physical things can be taken away. And the tax rate can go up. And the freedoms can go down. And the representation can di- and disappear. And God can still say, <laughs> He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. And we didn't read it, but in Psalm 37, you see the Lord sitting in the heavens and says, And he shall laugh, for he seeth that their day is coming. That's a righteous laugh, not a sarcastic, vindictive laugh like I would have. That's a righteous laugh. I'm just being honest. I don't have that kind of righteous anger. God does. That's why the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. So trust in the Lord, do good, and remember that God is just, and our payday is not God's payday. It's different. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. For these truths here, and I pray, Lord, that the truths of Psalm 37 and other places in Scripture would drive us to a greater dependence upon you and just a desire really more to walk in faith and to allow uh, your great power to shine through. Lord, that we might see and that a lost world might see what our God is capable of. For unto thee there is nothing impossible unto thee. And uh, we know, Lord, that uh, you can do anything. That your hand is not uh, waxed short, that it cannot save. And so we thank you, Lord, that uh, you're in the heavens and that you're just toward all. 
And help us to be merciful and kind to others as we remember just how good we have it in Jesus Christ. And uh, there are some who've never heard. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to have a heart that desires to at least give everyone that chance, whether it be to put a track in their hand, to speak the word, combination of both, whatever the case may be. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.